Well, good morning, church, and welcome to our morning worship, uh, our Easter Sun, our Easter series entitled Eight Days That Changed the World. And today is Sunday, April 5th, and we see that our world is in the grip of the coronavirus pandemic. We are practicing social distancing and self-isolation, but we still want to worship the true and living God. So thank you for listening and worshiping with us this morning. I'd like to open with our congregational prayer, if you would. So if you would, please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we want to praise you for your goodness, your greatness, for your loving involvement in the affairs of your creation. Lord, we see your hand at work and we thank you for what you're doing. We see that you're powerful and mighty and that what we're experiencing is is beyond our control and our ability. Your sovereignty and your greatness is recognized. Father, we want to confess our sins to you. When we see your awesomeness, we see our sinfulness, and we ask, Lord, please have mercy on us and forgive us our sins as a nation, as a church, and as individuals. We pray for the sin and unrighteousness in its many forms, in our thoughts, words, and deeds, the acts of commission and the acts of omission. Forgive us, we pray. We want to thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ Jesus. As we approach this Passion Week, Father, we uh, this time of your great suffering on behalf of our sin, we want to thank you for it. You paid for our sin on the cross. May we never forget what you've done for us. May we be mindful of it each and every day. Thank you for salvation and that you're a very real help in time of trouble and need, especially in this time of the pandemic. Father, we want to pray specifically for our nation to turn to you in this time of pestilence and sickness. Use this time to strengthen your church to be the church. We pray that we would look out for each other and care for one another, and that we pray that the church would be there to answer people's questions and needs. We pray for your protection of Cashi Baptist Church and our members and their families. We pray especially for our brother Danny Perry, who is in the hospital, for his care and recovery at this time. We pray for your support and strengthening of the Perry family. We pray for our national, state, and local leaders to act wisely at this time. The course of action, whether it be the medical aspects, the economic aspects, Lord, this is bigger than any of us, and we pray for wisdom to uh, do what is right. Now we pray, Father, as the psalmist prayed in Psalm 86, verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, I will walk in your truth, unite my heart to fear your name. For our Bible reading selection today, we're going to turn in our Bibles to Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11 as we read about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. If you're home and you're worshiping with your family, may I encourage you to please stand as we read God's word out of honor and respect for his word. Reading in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. When they had broached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, And immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them 
and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, and all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated as we take a look at this exciting event in world history. This series is entitled, Eight Days That Changed the World, and today we're going to look at the presentation and death of King Jesus the Messiah. Today is a traditional uh, day in the church calendar that we refer to as Palm Sunday, the day Jesus made his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem to culminate his earthly ministry in these eight days that will change the world forever. As we shared last week, these eight days start on Palm Sunday and through the Passion Week. We call it Passion Week because of the intense suffering our Lord Jesus will experience this week. And then it will culminate on the Resurrection Sunday next week. Last Sunday, I shared with you at the start of this series of the eight days that changed the world, we looked at the person and work of Jesus Christ, the person and work of King Jesus, the Messiah. Now, we looked at the gospel accounts, and I want to point out that fully one-third of the gospel accounts deal with these eight days that change the world. Eight days uh, take up one-third of the gospels. By way of review, we looked at the four gospels, and they served as the historical and biographical depiction of Jesus the Messiah. We looked at the gospel of Matthew Levi, written to the Jews, thematically proclaiming Jesus the Messiah, the King of the Jews, showing that he was the fulfillment of the messianic promises of a Davidic king. Then we looked at the action-packed gospel of John Mark, written to the Romans, depicting Jesus the Messiah, the servant of Jehovah, the obedient servant on a mission to redeem the world. Then we looked at the Gospel of Dr. Luke, written to the Greeks, presenting Jesus the Messiah, the Son of Man, being God yet fully the perfect man. Finally, we looked at the Gospel of John the Beloved, writing to the whole world, telling the world of the love of God manifested in Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. We highlighted the events of Jesus' life from the prophetic promises in the Old Testament 
to his humble birth in Bethlehem, his upbringing in Nazareth, to his, then to his three-and-a-half-year public ministry, beginning on the shoreline of the Jordan River, where John the Baptist declared, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. His whole life was to teach and show the ways and wisdom of God. He was the very word, the logos of God, seeking to redeem and reconcile sinful man to his holy self. John 7.46 tells us, No one ever spoke the way this man does. And Matthew 22.29 tells us, He spoke as one having authority and not as the scribes. In his person, he was filled with the authority of God because he was sent by God. In his work, he spoke and did the will of God because he was the Son of God. As we looked at the person and work of Jesus, King Jesus the Messiah last week, and today as we look at the presentation and sacrifice of King Jesus the Messiah, I'm struck by the whole concept of time and of God's timing. Here we have the Son of God who is immortal, infinite, and eternal, and not confined or limited by time. He takes on human flesh, entering time and limiting himself to time to reveal himself in a way that we can understand him and relate to him. Today we are going to look at the presentation and the sacrifice of King Jesus the Messiah. We are going to look at Jesus doing things at just the right time in the days leading up to Good Friday. There are five parts that we'll look at. The first one deals with the right time historically. Then we'll look at the right time prophetically. Then we'll look at the right time sequentially. And then the right time scripturally. And finally, the right time sacrificially. First, we see it was the right time historically. If you could remember back to the kickoff Sunday we had in September as we were getting ready for the school year and the regular church activities after a great summer, I brought an evangelistic message entitled, In the Fullness of Time, which was based on Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, that reads, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The fullness of time speaks of just the right time God sent his son into the world to redeem sinful man. I shared that at the absolute perfect time in world history, not a second too early or a second too late, God in Christ entered the world as the geopolitical, the commercial, the logistical, the linguistical, and the desperate spiritual condition of the world were aligned to prepare mankind for the first advent of Christ. It was the right time historically. Then we see it was the right time prophetically. Now, many years ago, traveling with my family, we traveled to London, England. On one occasion, we went to the British Museum, and we were in the Egyptian section of the museum. During a restroom break after touring, I was waiting for my family members to finish and to gather our kids back and would cover another thousand years of world history. While I was waiting, I was leaning on one of the exhibits completely unaware of what it was. 
until one of the security guards approached me and ever so politely asked me, Excuse me, sir, would you mind not resting upon the Rosetta Stone? I immediately complied and was amazed that the Rosetta Stone was out in the open for anyone to touch it. Today, it's probably behind bulletproof glass, but there it was, right before me. Now, the Rosetta Stone, discovered in 1799 in northern Egypt, was a significant discovery in that it held the key to interpret Egyptian hieroglyphics. On the stone was the hieroglyphic symbols with Egyptian demotic language and ancient Greek explanation of the symbols. Up to that discovery, we had no way to accurately and precisely read and understand the Egyptian symbols. It served as a helpful key to understanding the great mysteries of this great Egyptian civilization. The Bible has a great section of prophecy that helps us understand the significance and interpretation of other prophetic passages, especially the end times. Our Rosetta Stone of Bible prophecy is found in the book of Daniel and deals with the 70 weeks of Daniel. Without getting too deep into the details of the prophetic book, let me share with you how it relates to Palm Sunday. In Daniel 9, the angel Gabriel reveals to Daniel the following in verses 24 and 25. He says, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. According to this passage, the seven weeks plus 62 weeks total 69 weeks. Now the term weeks is a group of sevens, as we use a dozen to indicate twelve. You get a dozen eggs or a dozen donuts, that's 12. The Bible uses the term weeks to speak of seven. But these weeks represent years. So from the issuing of the decree to the presentation of the Messiah, the Prince, there are 69 weeks or 69 sevens, which equals 483 years. The decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was issued by Artaxerxes in Nehemiah 2. This occurred on March 14th, 445 B.C., or more specifically, the 10th of Nisan in the Hebrew calendar. In calculating the number of days, scholars have had difficulty in the past when they've used 365 days in a solar year rather than 360 days in a Jewish lunar calendar year. When you do the calculating and making the adjustments for the additional month of Adar in the Hebrew calendar, you get 483 years. And multiply that by 360 days in the biblical year, you get 173,880 days. Carefully counting, that would cause you to arrive at April 2nd, 30 AD. And more importantly, the 10th of Nisan, 30 AD, the exact day 
Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The presentation of the king, the Messiah, was right because it was the prophetic bullseye, the exact, precise, prophesied time he entered Jerusalem. It was the right time prophetically. Then we see, for the third point, it was the right time sequentially in the redemptive plan of God. On the 10th of Nisan, Jesus made his way from Bethany, where he was staying with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, his friends. It is a short two-mile journey, an easy walk. In fact, everywhere we read in the in, of Jesus traveling, he walked. But on this particularly significant day, Jesus rides on an unbroken colt, the foal of a donkey. We read in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As Jesus was coming from Bethany, the home of his friends, one of whom was Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, Jesus' fame and reputation preceded him. There was a stir in Jerusalem that the Messiah who did the miracles only Messiah could do was coming. The people who hated the subjugation and oppression of the Roman occupiers were hoping he would be the one to conquer their oppressors. Their king was coming to defeat their oppressors. This messianic fervor is revealed in John 12, verses 12 and 13. A great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Their military liberator had finally come. Not so fast. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Baruch Haba Basham Adonai. That is an expression from the Psalms. Jesus said would usher in the millennial reign, as he told us in Matthew 23, verse 39. The priest and the people of Israel had missed it. The whole atonement. They thought that their sacrificial system was enough but it was really a picture of something greater to come. You see, about a year and a half earlier, when Jesus was authenticating his messianic mission, the Jewish religious leaders and nation rejected Jesus as Messiah by attributing to him the works of the devil. We read in Matthew 12, verses 22 to 24, Then a demon-possessed man, who is blind and mute, was brought to Jesus. And he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. They said this because they considered Jesus a threat to their system and their status in society. Now, that generation, and that generation only, was guilty of the unpardonable sin of blasphemy blasphemy against the Spirit. This unpardonable sin was the national rejection of the Messiahship 
of Jesus on the grounds of demon possession. From that point on, the kingdom program to the house of Israel was rescinded to that generation, only to be reoffered to a future Jewish generation in the Great Tribulation. That's during the 70th week of Daniel. This was now the third national generational rejection of God's will for Israel. The first one occurred in Kadesh Barnea during the Exodus, resulting in the judgment of that generation to wander 40 years in the wilderness, only to die off. The second was during the sin of Manasseh, the cruelest and most idolatrous king in Israel's history. He was known for shedding of innocent blood, of human sacrifice to the false god Molech. That generation was led into Babylon Babylon for captivity. The third and the most serious was this generation's rejection of Messiah as, uh, as Jesus as the Messiah. The judgment they were to experience was going to occur in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the dispersion of the Jewish people. Now the Jewish people throughout the ages have suffered from what we call a leadership complex. If their leaders went one way, they would follow. In Jesus' time, we see that the rabbis, priests, and scribes rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and the people would reject him as well. Concerning his dealing with the nation uh, Israel in this time, Jesus' message and his methods would change. He'd now speak in parables. He would warn those not to speak of what he had miraculously done for them. There was a definite shift in his kingdom program for the nation Israel. While individual Jews were saved, the nation, the Jewish nation, was to suffer. Now, as Jesus made his way through Jerusalem, the people took off their cloaks and took palms down off the trees. That's how we get the name Palm Sunday. The Jewish people had done this before in their history, in the time of Judah and Simon Maccabees in the second century B.C., as they were considered victorious military leaders in their skirmishes with the Syrian and Roman enemy. Now Jesus was going to do the same, or so they thought. The people's actions with the palm branches was more consistent with the fall feast of tabernacles than the spring feast of Passover. Their king was going to tabernacle with them. They would be free from their oppressors, they thought. There was just one problem. They were still in their oppression, not only of the Rome, but the more serious oppression of their sin. God had to deal with their sin first before he would tabernacle with his people. On this Sunday, Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, and in light of the nation's rejection, he speaks words of lament and judgment in Luke 19, verses 41 and 44. We read, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The Jewish leaders and the people missed it. In the rejection of Jesus, they did not recognize the day of their visitation. 
the time was right sequentially because the Lamb of God had to be presented to atone for sin first. Now, it was the right time scripturally. The real theological significance of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that day was not the conquest of Rome, but the conquest of sin's dominion through his sacrifice on the cross. As we shared last week, Jesus' public ministry started when the herald and forerunner of the king, John the Baptist, announced, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On that Palm Sunday that Jesus came to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus is presented as the Passover Lamb of God. You see, the 10th of Nisan, according to the law of Moses in Exodus 12, is very significant and important for us. We read, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the 10th of the month, that is Nisan, we, uh, they are to each one take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. That lamb was to be selected and then tested and inspected for four days to look for defects or fault in him. And then he was presented as a sacrifice. From Palm Sunday, the events of the next four days served to test the lamb's purity and his acceptability. Now, on Monday, uh, Jesus uh, is making his way to Jerusalem. He was hungry, and he sought some food from a fig tree. Now, figs are a prominent food in Israel. However, this was not the time of the year for the figs to be present. However, the fig tree gives off a leaf. They're editable, no- they're editable nodules called pagims, or green figs. These are tiny flowers that have soft skin on them. However, this particular fig tree did not produce any fruit. Now, the Bible often refers to um, the spiritual nation of Israel to a fig tree. Now, Jesus rightfully curses this fig tree to wither because, like the nation Israel, in their rejection of Messiah, in their professed righteousness of Pharisaic Judaism, The tree was professing to have something it did not have. On that same day, Jesus makes his way to the temple, and he is involved in cleansing of the temple a second time. Now, Jesus began his public ministry in Jerusalem by cleansing the temple at Passover. He does this again at his last Passover, the corruption of the money changers and the selling of animals that were sold for sacrifices made the temple a place of merchandise. In John 2, it is said of Jesus, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus said to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. Jesus' commitment to the honor and proper worship of God confirms he is a lamb without blemish or fault. Now on Tuesday, we see continued testing of the lamb in that four times a specific group in isolation or a combination of groups examines Jesus in the temple area. 
Now, their purpose was to incite the people against him or to try to trick him and catch him with breaking a Jewish law or, even better, a particularly um, punishable law of Roman law. They questioned him as to his authority. They questioned him him about the baptism of John, the uh, parable of the two sons, the householder who sent his own son into the vineyard, the parable of the wedding. They asked him about giving tribute to Caesar or not. They asked him about the childless widow with the seven deceased husbands in the resurrection and finally questioned him about which was the greatest commandment. With each and every test, the Messiah answered skillfully, deftly, and with great understanding of the scriptures. He should, because he and his father and the spirit were authors of it. Now, leaving his accusers often frustrated and dumbfounded, the Lamb of God is found blameless in their sight. So much so, they will gather at the high priest Caiaphas' house to conspire and to plot to see how they could kill him. On Wednesday of the week, Jesus takes time during this busy week to continue to train his disciples in what we now call the Olivet Discourse. Jesus meets with them on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley from uh, looking at the city of Jerusalem. Jesus speaks to them in descriptive parallel parables about the end-time events concerning the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish nation in the tribulation period. Looking out over the city, it must have been powerful to hear Jesus explain what will happen. He emphasizes the need for those believers to be watchful, ready, and diligent, which is excellent advice even for us today. On Thursday morning, uh, before the Passover that evening, Jesus gives his disciples, Peter and John, specific instructions about a man carrying a pitcher of water in town. Uh, Normally, this is a woman's job, but the man carrying the uh, pitcher of water would be quite distinct. And they were to inquire about a room where the Passover Seder would be held. They met this man, and they made the arrangements. On that Thursday night, Jesus celebrated his Passover and his first Lord's Supper with his disciples. In Luke 22, 15, Jesus said to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I, too, was looking forward to sharing a Passover with each and every one of you. As this month, as a part of our joy group, we were going to celebrate a Passover Seder meal together and see the portrayal of Christ throughout this instructive meal. Unfortunately, the coronavirus changed those plans, and perhaps maybe next year we can do it. In this meal, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper to remember his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. As they have eaten the meal, uh, afterwards they take, the Lord Jesus took the third cup of the four cups in the meal. This cup is called the cup of redemption. And along with the unleavened bread called matzah, he proclaims, this is my body and this is my blood shed for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. Do this and remember my sacrifice for you. And after they had sung a song, a hymn, they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. In Hebrew, Gethsemane means olive press. 
where they would press the olives to make the oil. It is here that our Lord is hard-pressed and in agony, sweating drops of blood. It's a medical condition called uh, hematohydrosis. Uh, It can happen when the blood vessels around the sweat glands constrict due to extreme stress. In this time, Jesus prays, and three times he asks the Father to let this cup of suffering pass. But each time he submits and prays, not my will, but yours be done. Now, late Thursday night into early Friday morning, Jesus is arrested by the Jewish authority. He's betrayed by one of his followers, uh, Judas Iscariot, but he's denied three times by Peter and all the other disciples scatter and abandon him. He is accused of blasphemy and sentenced to death, but the Jewish leaders could not execute the death sentence. Only the Romans could. In their illegal religious trial before the Sanhedrin, they egregiously violate 22 of their own rules to conduct this trial. Their un successful attempt to execute Jesus, the Jewish authorities pressure the Romans to carry out the civil trial to have Jesus put to death. Jesus is presented to Pontius Pilate, who interrogates Jesus, then sends him to Herod Antipas, since Jesus is from Galilee. Now, Herod's domain fall is from uh, Galilee, um, which is Herod's domain, but he fails to find any charge or fault with uh, Jesus. Jesus returns to Pilate, and after more interrogation, Pilate announces what the Jewish leaders should have announced after their four days of testing the Passover lamb. I find no fault in this man. The lamb was found to be sinless, without spot or blemish. Now, continuing on Friday morning at the Pilate's announcements of innocence, the crowd continued to demand his execution. Pilate attempted to placate the Jews by giving them a choice between Jesus and a notorious criminal and rebel insurrectionist Barabbas, who was under a death sentence. The chief priest incited the crowd to ask for the guilty Barabbas uh, instead of the innocent Jesus. This demonstration of the exchanged life could not be any clearer. The innocent Jesus was to be a substitute for the sins of the guilty Barabbas. Now, convinced of his innocence, Pilate attempts a third attempt to placate the Jews' bloodthirstiness. Pilate orders Jesus to be scourged. Now, scourging was used by the Jews to deal with grievous violations of the law. The Apostle Paul, we read in the epistles, was scourged five times in his ministry of the Gospels. Now, this scourging was painful, but never deadly. There were specific rules to the procedures um, that they were to follow. They would give 40 lashes minus one in case of a miscounting. Only the back could be whipped, and the whip consisted of multiple short lashes. However, Jesus was not scourged by the Jews, but by the Romans, with vastly different procedures. The number of lashes were limitless. The Roman whip was longer and embedded with pieces of metal, nails, glass, or sharp bones. 
It left the victim reduced to a bloody, unrecognizable pulp. If you have ever seen the movie Passion of the Christ, that was perhaps the most authentic portrayal of Roman scourging as ever depicted. The soldiers mocked, spat upon, and plucked the beard of Jesus. Since he claimed to be king, he needed a crown. They unwittingly fashioned a crown of piercing, sharp thorns, symbolic of the Adamic curse, the curse of Adam's sin. You think after all of this, the Jewish leader's bloodlust would have been satisfied, but it wasn't. The leaders demanding Jesus' execution now claim that if Pilate were to release Jesus, he was not a friend to Caesar. Pilate knew their accusations were deeply personal, while their charges were political. In John 19.14, Pilate declares, Behold your king, to which the crowd responded, We have no king but Caesar. Intimidated by the accusations and implications of the crowd, Pilate pronounced judgment to be carried out while attempting to absolve himself by washing his hands of this innocent man's blood. Pilate had the power to release Jesus, but he did not. Now both Gentile and the Jew were guilty of this man's innocent blood in the gravest miscarriage of justice. Now this last section, we look at the presentation and the sacrifice of King Jesus the Messiah in that it was the right time sacrificially. It is now Friday morning, still the day of the Passover. In Jewish numbering, the day begins at sundown and ends at the sundown the next evening. Now, Jesus is forced to carry his cross per the Roman procedures. Already weakened and scourged, Jesus needs assistance to carry his cross. The soldiers impress Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross of Jesus. Again, another clear depiction of the exchanged life. Simon carried the cross he should have suffered on himself. Yet it became Jesus' cross for Simon and for all those who trust in him. On the way to Golgotha at the third hour, that's 9 a.m., Jesus is stretched upon the cross, his hands and his feet nailed to the tree. The cross is lifted up and falls jarringly into place. The titleist and a superscription placed above the head for all to read in three languages is placed. It reads in Hebrew that is read to the Jews, in Latin to the Romans, and in Greek to the Greeks. For all the world to know, it reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. In a normal crucifixion, the Romans perform, the victims yell and scream and hurl vile invectives at their executioners. Some of them are so bad that the Romans would pull out the tongues of some of the victims just to silence them and shut them up. But Jesus was different. Listen to his words from the cross. The gospel record uh, records seven statements Jesus makes from the cross. In Luke twenty-three thirty-four, we hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. In Luke twenty-three forty-three. In response to the thief next to him who recognized the innocence and conduct of King Jesus, the thief asks to be remembered by him when he came into his kingdom. Jesus said, 
Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In John 19, 25 through 27, Jesus, Jesus' concern for Mary, his mother, and for the disciple John to care for her said, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. In Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, while bearing the sins of the world and separated by those sins from his father, at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthini. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In John nineteen twenty-eight. Jesus said while suffering the wrath and justice of God, I thirst. In John 19.30, Jesus said, It is finished. Tetelastai, an accounting term meaning a debt is paid in full. In Luke 23.46, Jesus said with a loud voice, Father, Into your hands I commend my spirit. While Jesus hung on the cross between heaven and earth as our atonement for sin, the sky darkened over the whole land from noon until the ninth hour. At this same hour, the ninth hour, the Passover lamb was being sacrificed in the temple. When Jesus, the lamb of God, died, the earth quaked, dead were raised, And the veil in the temple rent from top to bottom. The Lamb of God has been slain for the sin of the world. And the creation trembled. Matthew 27.54 records the observations of a tough, battle-hardened Roman executioner who had supervised many an execution in the implementation of the Roman peace. We read, Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. By way of conclusion and invitation, we looked at the presentation and sacrifice of King Jesus the Messiah from Palm Sunday to Good Friday. We looked at God's perfect timing in these events. It was the right time historically. It was the right time prophetically. It was the right time sequentially. It was the right time scripturally. And it was the right time sacrificially. For the Christian, I hope you will read your Bible this week and look at the events of these eight days that changed the world and identify with the Lord and what he did for you. Thank him and love him for his great salvation that he purchased on Calvary's tree. For others who don't know Christ personally, unbelievers, I want to go back to Jesus' lament and heartbreak over Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday when he spoke, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. They missed what God in Christ was doing. The danger and the caution should be very clear for us not to miss it as well. This historical narrative of events of the eight days that changed the world will be completely missed by you if they don't become eight days that changed my world, my life, personally. 
Today, we have looked at the events leading up to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for your sin and mine. His substitutionary atonement, his payment for your sin in your place was seen in the life of Barabbas and Simon of Cyrene. Jesus took their place. He took my place. And most importantly for you, he took your place on that cross. His blood paid for your sin debt. Now you might ask, how do I apply his blood payment to my sin debt? It's by simple faith, by simple trust in Christ. As I always share, it's not complicated. It's as simple as A, B, C. Follow me. A, admit that you have sinned and done what is wrong in God's sight, that you need a Savior. B, believe or trust what Jesus did on the cross was for you personally. And C, Call upon the Lord. Ask him to save you, and he most certainly will. God does not want any of us to miss out and not recognize the day of our visitation. The Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. We are living in perilous times. With the COVID-19 pandemic, many might not have tomorrow. You might not have tomorrow. That's why Today is the day of salvation. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ to be your Savior and would like to trust him to save you from the day of judgment to come, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I admit that I have sinned and broken your laws and done what is wrong in your sight. I am truly sorry, and I ask you to forgive me of these sins. I believe that your son Jesus suffered and died on the cross in my place. I believe that his sinless blood was the payment for my sins, that he was buried and he rose three days according to the scriptures. I call upon you and ask you to save me and grant me new life, a new relationship and eternal life with you now and in heaven when I die. Thank you for loving me so much that you sent Jesus to make all these things possible. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you've prayed that prayer, I can assure you that God has heard you and that he will save you. Consider this uh, and do not let this day of your visitation pass you by. Amen.